Good morning. Well, I'm a proud papa. I have two girls at home, and I have a drool-by-drool drool chronicle of their lives. It, uh, by some of our, our, some of our friends tell me it's a, a sure cure for insomnia. Uh, even their grandpa goes to sleep watching some of it. Grandma's interested, though. Uh, with that in mind, I wanted to share with you that Betty is pregnant with our third. Here's, here's he or she's picture. I really can't tell any more, much more than you can. It's, a, it's an ultrasound picture of a, of a baby that's about this size. This is 12 weeks along. And uh, you'll notice that I'm calling it a baby. Uh, women that are considering an abortion call it a fetus. So I decided to look in Webster's and find out what that definition of fetus is. And it's a developing human. So I stand before you a 440-month-old fetus. <laughs> let's, let's read some scripture that uh, talks about the abortion issue. The first one is Proverbs 17, verse 15. Proverbs 17, verse 15, acquitting the guilty, it says. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. Abortion is condemning to death an innocent baby in a pathetic attempt to cover the guilty of sin. So you're using one sin to cover another. And as King David learned, that march just goes downhill. The second scripture is Genesis 4, verse 10. And this is uh, the Lord talking to Cain about the death of Abel. Genesis 4, verse 10. The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Innocent blood cries out. The last scripture I'll share with you is in James and that's chapter 1, verse 27. And James says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I want to suggest to you that caring for widows and orphans is caring for women with their unborn children. Sixteen years ago, Roe versus Wade was decided, and 25 million babies have, been, have died since then. With this number of abortions, I'm sure each of you has a friend, relative, family member that is considering or has had an abortion. What do you say to them? 
What we offer is an opportunity to help you know what to say to them. It's this brochure that's in your bulletin. It's called How to Minister to Women with Unplanned Pregnancies. And I would urge you to take a look at it and ask God or feel the prompting of God or respond to God's prompting to come and learn how to minister to women with unplanned pregnancies. Well, that's an opportunity for you to get involved. Um, how did we get involved in this ministry? Um, I felt about four years ago uh, that I would, that uh, a tugging in that direction, so I talked to Betty and we decided we would go to a, a Crusade for Life meeting. Uh, we attended meetings once a month and felt we were very involved in the Right to Life activities. And so I felt that uh, it might be necessary, I, I felt a need to, uh, a prompting to go get more involved. And so I figured, well, it seems like uh, with a Crusade for Life organization in this area, one of the things we could do is, is uh, sidewalk counseling. So I went to a course. I talked to Betty about going to a, uh, a course where they would teach you how to sidewalk counsel. And I said, no way. I don't want to go. <laughs> I don't want to go stand in front of an abortion clinic and try to talk to strangers about their personal thing about having an abortion. But since Tom and I had always done ministry together, I thought, well, okay, Lord, I'll go with him, but I'm going to go dragging my heels. <laughs> we got to the meeting, and we went around a circle, and they asked, well, why are you here? And I said, I don't really want to be here. I'm only here because he's here. <laughs> so a week or two later, we were out in front of the abortion clinic with our little literature and our Bibles and ready to obey God. <laughs> And it was scary. We had butterflies in our stomach. We had no clue what to say. We were, you know, our tongue was kind of tied. And it was scary. It wasn't a lot of fun. We came home from there, and we were really exhausted. But we kept doing it and kept doing it. And here we are three years later, and we're keeping doing it because of what we've seen. We go up to an abortion clinic in Inglewood where they do 10,000 abortions a year. We go on Saturdays, and there's a group of about uh, 10 faithful servants who go up there on Saturdays, and we stand outside. We sing praises to God. We pray for the people inside. We pray for the abortionist salvation. We pray for the women going in there that day. We pray for the workers in there that they would come to know the Lord. We preach. We have megaphones, and we, we preach the word of God into the clinic. We, we witness to people who are walking in. If they'll stop and talk to us and they want to hear the good news, we tell it. And what we're offering those women are alternatives to abortion, the grace of God, concrete housing opportunities, where they can get medical care, trying to target the things, the reasons why they feel the, the absolute need to go in and kill their baby. And so that's what we're there for. We see young girls. We saw one 12- or 13-year-old girl being kind of dragged by her mother in, crying and carrying her doll as she went in for her abortion. We see young unmarried couples going in who think that that's their only way out. We see girls who are going in for their third and fourth abortions. We see men and women who need Jesus Christ. And we need faithful servants out there to tell them the good news. Otherwise, they don't know. They just march right in. The abortionists aren't going to tell them the good news. All they want is their money. When we're out there, there are good things, though. 
We have two, at least two turnarounds every Saturday. A turnaround is a girl who changes her mind. So that's eight babies a month, at least eight, who are saved. That's 100 babies a year. And that's exciting. Girls come out of the clinic after they've heard preaching for a while, and they say, I couldn't help it. I just heard what you were saying, and I knew that it was the truth. And I had asked God to, to speak to me, and you guys were out there. And praise God. Praise God. Once we minister to them, though, we don't just leave them there. We try to encourage them to go to their pastor, to get involved with their church. We try to encourage them to come here. We try to incorporate them and follow up with them to make sure that they have rides to the doctor, that they have follow-up on where they might live. Take them down to a home friend with mothers to interview for a place to live. So we don't just leave them off, you know, say, okay, now you haven't had your abortion, we'll see you later. We try to follow up with them, and that's the whole thrust of why we're out there, because Jesus has, has shown us his mercy and grace and faithfulness, and that's what we have to offer to them. That's our sidewalk counseling ministry. We have other areas of ministry. We have women within our congregation here who have had abortions, who have come and volunteered their time and said, if you have a girl who's considering an abortion, have them call me. I'll share with them the impact that abortion has really had on my life, the, the nightmares that I have, the, the fact that I can't have a baby because of my abortion, and I want to protect them from that scar. We have women who have had unplanned pregnancies who have gone ahead and have their children and want to share that excitement because they've seen the miracle of a birth of a baby, and they've seen God's faithfulness to see them through that situation, to forgive them and to go on and to raise up that baby. We have practical resources for all of you if you know someone who has an unplanned pregnancy so that you have somewhere to go, some people to call to say, hey, I know this girl. Where could she go live? What should I tell her? How do I explain to her that it's really a baby? We have literature and all kinds of resources for you and for you mini church pastors as well. We work with the traditional values ministry side by side on legislative efforts. And then lastly, we also have people within Hope for Life and within our congregation at large who have participated in the Operation Rescue effort where they physically put their body between the sidewalk and the clinic door so that no one may pass for that day, so that no abortions may be done, and so that babies can be saved. There are also people who sidewalk counsel at the same time to try to talk to the girls who may have had a scheduled abortion that day. Betty has shared with you s several of the ongoing activities here at Hope for Life. If God is prompting you to participate in this ministry, attend the seminar and learn about all the, uh, about all the helps that are available for women with unplanned pregnancies. There are several speakers which you can read their bios in this and you can see the issues that are addressed. And we all, when we start, don't really know how to handle ourselves. I can think of uh, sidewalk counseling outside of one clinic where there was a, a veterinary uh, hospital next door. And you got to the point that you were hoping to see some sort of a pet in the car because you knew that person wasn't going to the abortion clinic. So you were looking for dogs and cats and that sort of thing. Um, in, in conclusion, I'd like to share with you the rewards of this ministry. And this is the reward. This is a birth announcement. It has a little stork, and the stork is holding a bundle, and it says, Our Special Delivery. 
inside. It says that Cynthia Marie was born 12, and she weighed 12 pounds, excuse me, 7 pounds, 12 ounces. Big baby. Yeah. And, and her mother, when we received this birth announcement, sent along the following letter. And the letter says, Remember, Betty, that I was one step to enter the door where murder takes place and where girls like I go thinking that it's going to solve the problem. We don't realize that we are murdering a precious little being that all it needs is time to develop. If it wasn't for persons like you who are willing to talk to us and make us realize what we have in our wombs, I wouldn't have my child with me now. So thank you again. I pray to God that every time you talk to girls who are thinking about abortion, that he put magic words in your mouth to make them change their mind. We have time for a couple questions. If you think of some questions, uh, our phone number is in the bulletin uh, under Hope for Life, Ministry to Women with Unplanned Pregnancies, and we'd be happy to answer them if you give us a call. Tom and Betty, thank you very much. You can sit over, why don't you sit over on the other side by the, by the stairwell so that we can scoot out of here when I'm done, okay? We'll go down to the 9.30 service. I'm very appreciative of that couple and for the work that they are doing in our church, and it's very difficult work. Last night, after the service, a lady came up to me with tears in her eyes. And she said, amidst her tears and the, the choked up feelings and so forth, she, she said, thank you. I don't know if she spoke to you guys or not. But she had lived for 25 years with the guilt of an abortion. And our remarks included the fact that if you're a Christian, God has forgiven you of that. And that baby is in heaven. And that one day she would see that baby. She never thought, she said, I never thought that I would, it could ever be forgiven of that terrible thing that I did 25 years ago. She's lived with that for 25 years. And so... For me, if nothing else comes out of this entire weekend of you guys sharing <clears throat> us talking about this, that one woman being freed up from that guilt is so worth it. And, and to, to see her, for once now living without condemnation, is just absolutely mir miraculous. Chuck Colson, <clears throat> most of you know who he is and have heard his name and maybe read some of his books. Chuck Colson wrote an article a couple of years ago, and it was in the Christianity Today magazine. And he said this. He said, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And part of the issue that he was talking about was the incredible 
selfish immorality in our country, and more specifically, the issue of abortion. In the ancient Near East, when you read in the Old Testament, God didn't bring the Israelites into the Promised Land, into Palestine, until the iniquity of the Canaanite was full. That's the phrase that's used. Until the Canaanites had become so evil and so heinous in their attitudes and their behavior that they were absolutely beyond any kind of redemption. The iniquity of the Amorite, the Canaanite, was full. And then God brought Israel into the Promised Land, and he gave Israel the command to destroy every living thing in the land of Palestine because the people had become so despicable, so evil, and so heinous that all they were good for was destruction. Much as the people were destroyed by the flood earlier on in the book of Genesis. The issue, the one issue that broke, if you will, the, the straw that broke the camel's back for the Canaanites was this. They had become so degraded as a culture and a society that they were now sacrificing their babies to the god Baal. And how they would do that was a very particular way. Their, their sacrificial system had come to a place where they would literally sacrifice these babies. Baal was a demonic figure, obviously, and, but they worshipped this god. And they pictured him as a... Uh, or they, 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 the... Uh, idol was literally a hot oven, a stove, like a big, big potbelly stove. And on the front of it were two long protrusions, arms that stuck out like this, parallel. They would stoke this stove up till it's white hot. Then they would bring their babies and lay their babies on these searing hot arms and allow them to roll down into the oven, live. That was how they worshipped. That's what they did in the name of worship. And you know what God's feelings are about the widows and the orphans. And Tom made this remark last night. I thought it was very apropos that women, in, a, in that sense, are really widows and those babies are really the orphans. But to see, that was exceedingly, exceedingly heinous in God's sight. And those people were good for nothing except to be destroyed. God has not yet destroyed America, I, I believe, for the sa for, save the, uh, because of the prayers of the church. You remember, God delayed destroying Sodom and Gomorrah because of Abraham's prayers. He said, Lord, if there are just ten righteous... Will you save the city? And the Lord said, yes, if there are just ten righteous in that city. And there are saints praying. People like Tom and Betty and many of you. You see the handwriting on the wall. The church is being roused to action. Not only to speak out, but to say, oh God, turn, turn this country. Turn the hearts of the people back towards you. 
so that we could turn from our wicked, wicked ways. There may be very well some women here this morning who've had an abortion. Maybe some men here this morning who've had a a hand in not necessarily performing it, but coaxing and moving a woman towards an abortion because you didn't want to handle the responsibility of an unplanned pregnancy. If you're a Christian, I hope you know the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, that you're not carrying a burden of guilt and condemnation. Your sin has been forgiven. If you're not a Christian, you may or may not be carrying a load of guilt, a burden of condemnation. Sometimes those things that we do in our life are so, so horrible to our sense of conscience, we bury them, we, we, we run fast to hide, to hide from them, ignore them, because we don't want to have to confront what we have done. But sooner or later it catches up to us. Sooner or later we have to deal with it. If you're not a Christian, I want to tell you that this morning you can be forgiven if that's ever happened in your life, or anything. You can be forgiven. God will actually forgive you for that crime. And he'll cleanse you from all the guilt and all the unrighteousness so that you can walk out of here this morning and know that God has released you from all of that, that burden. And you can have the great hope of knowing that one day, because you've given your life to Jesus Christ, because you sat here in a chair and you bowed your head quietly and you said, God, forgive me. Jesus, save me. Because you made that that decision, that one day you'll be in heaven and you'll be in heaven and you'll see that child that you never knew and there will be indeed a glorious reunion. I remember several years ago telling a young woman that she'd had an abortion. She was all bound up by it. She'd become a Christian, but she, she didn't have a category in her thinking that, that God could possibly forgive her of that. And we sat down and we talked, and it was just right out in front of the church, on the bricks out there. And I told her, yes, God... God could even forgive you of that. And she just started to weep. And she asked me, she said, where where is my baby? And I said, your baby's in heaven. And when you get there, you're going to see him or you're going to see her. And that was an exciting thought. She'd never had that category. And it set her free. She never thought she was worthy enough to be married or ever have kids again. And today she's married and has four kids and she can hardly wait to get to heaven to see her fifth one. Isn't that exciting? There's hope in Christ. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you've been through that experience, oh, I just urge you to turn to Jesus. Those aren't just words. He'll do a work in your life He'll do something tangible, palpable. You'll be able to know that something has happened in you and you'll walk out of here cleansed and freed and no longer condemned. No self-condemnation. 
The devil won't come and blow in your ear. He'll try. But you say, no, no, God's forgiven me. And you can forgive yourself. You can forgive yourself. We have that hope. And so I want you to think about that, especially this morning as we prepare for communion, as we go to the communion table and we go back to the foot of the cross and we contemplate the death of Jesus Christ. Very, very important. Very important. I want to talk with you a couple, just say a couple of things out of Ephesians chapter 1 in preparation for communion. If you'll turn there. And really on the heels of our conversation about the abortion issue, For the past three weeks, as we've looked into the first chapter of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul has taught us, he's spoken to us and about who we are and what we possess. He's described our position in Christ. He's called us saints. He's called us the faithful He's told us that we are chosen in Christ. That God's purpose is to make us holy and blameless like Christ. He's told us that we've been adopted as children of God. We participate indeed in the divine nature. He's told us that we've been redeemed by the blood of the Son of God. Our sins have been cleansed. Forgiveness. He's told us we have an awesome inheritance. Guaranteed. He's told us all of this in the first 14 verses of chapter 1. But you see, that's not enough just to tell us. In the next section, especially in verses 17 through 19, he does something even more. He prays for the church. He prays for us. It's one thing to tell us the truth. It's one thing to tell us what's true about us as a Christian. But apparently that's not sufficient. He takes another step and he prays that we would know, that we would understand who we are, that we would understand what we possess, who we are in Christ. Read with me in chapter 1, verses 17 through 20, or 19. Paul says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. He's praying. He says, oh, I pray. Father, that they might know you better. I've told them about you, and I've I've told them what you've done for them. But that they might know you better. He doesn't conclude there, though. He goes on and he says this. I pray also 
that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. In other words, your understanding may be enlightened, may be opened up. Not only to know him better, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The plan of God. What's his plan for your life? And the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul prays that we might know him better, we might know his plan better, and we might know his power for us. Think about that. Beloved, if you don't know who you are, if you don't know who you are in Christ, if you don't know what you possess, you cannot live the life. Does that make sense to you? If you don't understand it, you've got to understand it down deep inside. Somebody ever said anything to you or you know, gave you a piece of advice, counsel, and it's just kind of gone off your back? And, and maybe several times you've heard it and then someone else comes along and tells you the same thing and you hear it and you go back to this person and say, oh, guess what I just heard? And they look at it, I've been telling you that for months. Oh, really? Until it sinks in. And Paul says, in effect, it's got to be prayed in, these things, that we might understand them. Because if we don't understand them, if we don't understand them, we can't live them out. And there are lots and lots of Christians trying to live the Christian life. And you know what? They don't even understand what the Christian life is all about. They're just trying to be ethical, trying to keep some rules. But they don't understand what it's all about. They don't have the big picture. They don't have the foggiest notion of what God's doing and why he's doing it. In those first 14 verses, Paul tells us, but he prays, that the eyes of our understanding would be opened. That the truths that he has set forth would penetrate down deep inside and take root. That you'd know who you are in Christ. In raising my son, my wife and I try to impress upon him who he is. He's our son. But, Dad, the other kids are doing it. I don't care about the other kids. They're not mine. You're my son. But, no buts about it. Let me rehearse for you who you are. You're my son. I set certain standards for his life. I have certain expectations that he must meet. that is godly, that is Christian. I remind him, Michael, we're Christians. We serve the Lord. We don't do those things. We don't involve ourselves in those kinds of things. We must learn to speak up in these arenas. Unless he understands who he is, unless he understands what this life is about, he'll never live it. 
I pray for him constantly. My wife and I pray for him constantly. That the truth of who he is would sink down deep inside of him. And then the fruit would be born. And we see it happening and we're excited by that. Who are we? We're children of the King. We're children of the King. Do we understand that? Do we understand that? I try not to lay a real heavy trip on my son saying, well, you know, I'm the pastor. <laughs> but I, I have, he has to deal with that still. Our family has to deal with the fact that we live in a fishbowl. Michael has to understand, and he's got to be, be able to live with the tension that people are always going to watch him. We've already dealt with that in the children's church. People have come up and say, oh, you're, you're Michael, you're the pastor's son. And that's just a fact of life that we deal with. But the point is, he understands that he is my son and I am the pastor, and he must live up to certain expectations. The Bible says that children must honor their father and mother, does it not? We must honor our Heavenly Father. But you can't honor Him unless you understand who He is. I mean, who He is. And you can't honor Him and live your life that way unless you understand who you are. You're the child of a king. Live like the child of a king! You carry yourself in such a way that you will not dishonor your father. Right? I asked my son the other night, we were spending some time, and he was up in my office at home. I was sitting in my chair at my desk, and he was on the floor playing. I forget where Julie was. You were at a meeting, I think. And I said to him, I said, Michael, do you... Do you feel like mom and dad love you? He said, oh yeah. Oh yeah. I said, do you feel like you could tell us anything? He said, sure, dad. He said, I feel like I could, I could tell you guys anything. I want you to know that when he said that, I, I had to turn my chair to the wall and I wept. I said, thank you, Lord. He said, Dad, I, I want you to, to be proud of me. I said, honey, we are proud of you. We are proud of you. And there was no hint in his voice that he had to earn it from us. He knew that we loved him. He knew that he was cherished. Do we know that we're loved more or as much today as we ever will be? Do you know that God cherishes you today as much as he ever will? Sometimes I think we do our Christian stuff. We, we try to influence God. Maybe if we... If we do all this stuff that he'll like us better. Or if we don't do it, we're afraid he won't like us as much. Nothing you or I could ever do, nothing we ever don't do, 
affects one bit how he views us. He loves us because we're in Christ. Beloved, understand that. I had a meeting with a young man this week in my office. And he was struggling with his religious upbringing background, in which there was a lot of emphasis on, on you've got to work hard to please God or he's not happy with you. And as I listened to him, I stopped in midstream and I said, excuse me, let me help you here. I said, God loves you right now. God loves you right now as much as he ever will in all eternity. To him, it was absolutely incomprehensible to think that. He didn't have a category for that. I said, but it's true. It's true. Beloved, at some point along the way, we've got to understand who we are. And when you begin to understand who you are, when you begin to understand who he is, you'll find yourself not having to obey God, not having to live the Christian life, not having to do what's right. You'll find yourself longing to do it. You'll find yourself rising up in the morning and saying, God, I love you. Papa, I love you. And I want my life to bring honor to you today. And sadly, I don't think that the majority of the church in our nation does that. Many people do, but the majority I don't think does. Because if it did, we'd have this country turned right side up, not upside down still. We'd have a whole lot more persecution. Wouldn't that be exciting? Sure. So as we go to communion this morning, I want you to think, think of a couple of things. I want you to think, one, about the cross and about Jesus. When after all, he said, when you do it, remember me. When you have communion, remember me. When you go to the table and you take the, the cracker, you take the cup of juice, the cracker represents his body that was given, the, the cup, the juice, the, the blood that was shed, cleanse us of our sins. And so first you focus on him. First you say, Jesus, Jesus, thank you. Think about what he went through, if you can do that. About the agony of the death on the cross, how it was payment for sin, and in our sin, nailed him to the cross. He took our punishment, our guilt. We didn't deserve it. And then as you have that frame of reference, think now of who you are in Christ. That the moment you believed, the Holy Spirit baptized you into Christ. He immersed you into Christ. You became part of Him. You became one with Christ. That's how God the Father can look at you now and smile. Because He sees you in Christ. Think about that. Try to grasp that incredibly gigantic, elusive truth, what it means to be in Christ. Who you are. I had communion with 
two men last night. One of the men prayed, and as we were preparing to receive communion, and part of his prayer was, Father, Father, I've dishonored you with my attitudes and with my behavior, and I ask you to forgive me. And so as you understand who you are, the child of a king, know that he doesn't reject you. He doesn't turn his face from you. He doesn't ignore you. He doesn't love you any less. But his heart is grieved when we dishonor him. And indeed, his reputation is sullied. So take a few moments and remember Jesus. Take a few moments to remember who you are. And take a few moments to remember and think about the great inheritance, all that God has done, that Paul has talked to us about. And pray. Pray. The same prayer that Paul prays. God, open my eyes. Enrich my understanding of these things that I might grasp something of the fullness of who you are and what you've done. And if you'll go to communion with that attitude, with that prayer, thinking those thoughts, I know that God will do a wonderful work in response to your openness, to your receiving of His grace. Now, if you're new with us, we receive communion a little differently than most churches. We invite you to go as small groups of friends or family to the tables. I don't stand up here and lead you in communion, though we've done that upon occasion. But the worship team will be back in just a couple of minutes, and as they bring the music again, that's a signal, it's a time for you to begin to prepare your own thoughts, your own heart, to approach the tables. Take the elements. Move off to the side and receive them, or come back to your chairs. And receive the elements, thoughtfully, prayerfully, as I've just described. Don't anybody go to communion alone. When the Israelites celebrated Passover, which was uh, the, the great yearly remembrance of their deliverance from bondage in Egypt. They celebrated each in their own homes, the families together. And if there were any strangers in town who were apart from their families, these strangers were invited to come in so that no one was alone at that very precious time. Communion is a very precious time for the church and that there would be no one alone receiving communion. Look around. If you're with your family, go take the elements, come back to your chair, but watch. Watch for someone who may be by themselves, and, and step out and, and invite them to come receive communion with you. Or if you're alone and, and, and no one's approached you, you go approach somebody. Say, may I receive communion with you? Let's join in together. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we exalt your name. 